Good evening. I'm Lisa German, University Librarian and Dean of Libraries, and I'm delighted to welcome you to a Feast of Words co-sponsored by the Friends of the University Libraries and the Campus Club. Thank you so much for your co-sponsorship of this important event. Past feasts began with dinner together. For tonight's virtual event, I hope you've brought your appetite for stimulating conversation. We'll hear an inspiring talk by our unapologetic omnivore, Dr. John Wright, Professor Emeritus, who will be joined afterwards by curator Cecily Marcus. I'm also very happy to announce that in our virtual audience tonight is University President Joan Gable. Welcome, President Gable. Thank you so much for including a feast of words in your University of Minnesota event series on voice, art, and community, which features diverse voices throughout the arts and humanities. We ask that you, our guests, remain muted through the program, and you'll notice two bot buttons at the bottom of your screen. Please use the chat button if you have technical questions and the Q&A button if you have questions for Dr. Wright. You may submit your questions at any time and we'll get to as many as possible after the conversation. Before we begin, I'd like to share a perspective that's important to all of us. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the people on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with our tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough and we must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. Thank you. Now let's turn to Cecily to introduce herself and Dr. Wright. Hello, everybody. I'm Cecily Marcus, curator of the Gibbons Collection of African American Literature, the Performing Arts Archives, and the Upper Midwest Literary Archives at the University of Minnesota Libraries. I'm also the founding principal investigator for Umbra Search African American History. It's my great honor tonight to introduce Dr. John S. Wright, Professor Emeritus of African American and African Studies and of English a third generation University of Minnesota graduate who first matriculated in 1963. Dr. Wright has received degrees in three different fields. His PhD in 1977 in American studies, his dissertation, Ethiopia in Babylon, antebellum American romanticism in the emergence of black literary nationalism was 500 pages long, that's, that's long. His MA in 1971 in English and American Literature and his Bachelor's of Electrical Engineering in 1968. As a graduate student, Dr. Wright was a member of the Afro-American Action Committee, the group that took over in 1969 Morrill Hall and demanded the establishment of an African-American and African Studies Department, a program Dr. Wright helped build. 
1973, Dr. Wright was recruited by Carleton College to found its program in African-American studies. He then returned to the University of Minnesota to chair the Department of African-American and African Studies from 1984 to 1989, a position he took up again in 1995. He has twice been appointed a research associate at Harvard University's W.E.B. Du Bois Institute and was a member of its working group on Black intellectual history. He was also a scholar in residence at the New York Public Library's Schomburg Research Center in Black Culture. As a scholar and a beloved teacher, Dr. Wright's studies focus on African-American and African cultural, intellectual, and literary history, oral traditions, and cultural movements. He's the author of numerous publications, including Shadowing Ralph Ellison, Art, Leadership, and Technologies of the Spirit, published in 2006 by the University Press of Mississippi. He's lectured and taught all over the world, including in Berlin, Frankfurt, and Munich, at the Swiss Association of North American Studies in Bern, Switzerland, at the University of Sorbonne, Paris, and the University of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. In 1985, he spearheaded at the University of Minnesota the acquisition of what is now known as the Archie Gibbons Senior Collection of African-American Literature. As its founding curator and principal scholar for more than 30 years, Dr. Wright curated two major traveling exhibitions based on the Gibbons Collection, A Stronger Soul Within a Finer Frame, portraying African-Americans in the Black Renaissance, and Say It Loud, The Black Arts Movement and American Culture, 1960 to 1975. He created statewide teacher trainings in African-American literature, convened national literary conferences, published new scholarly editions of out-of-print African-American novels, and designed other outreach and educational efforts, essentially bringing out the most special, rare, priceless materials of the library out of the library and into the hands of readers, students, scholars, and the community. He continues to serve as the collection's most trusted advisor for which I am ever grateful. Select honors include being named CLA Scholar of the College in 1987 and the Morris Amico Distinguished Teaching Professor of African American and African Studies and English at the University of Minnesota. He's the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Bush Foundation, and more. Dr. Wright also served on the advisory board for the University Library's 2017 exhibit, A Campus Divided, Progressives, Anti-Communists, Racism, and Anti-Semitism at the University of Minnesota, 1930 to 1942. And he was named by then President Kaler to a committee investigating deliberate racial segregation, anti-Semitism and surveillance by you leaders at that time. In 2019, Dr. Wright retired from the University of Minnesota. The John S. Wright Luminaries Lecture Series in Africana Studies has been established in his honor. We're so happy to have you here tonight, Dr. Wright. Welcome, Dr. John Wright. That's a, that's a marvelous introduction. I hope it hasn't eaten up too much of our time for conversation and dialogue. I want to thank at the outset uh, all those members of the library staff and of the, the campus club who've collaborated on bringing this event to, to be. And to all of you who have tuned in tonight 
to join us for what is now the first Zoom Feast of Words in the history of this particular event. I, in part, want to, uh, to start by reorienting us a little bit about uh, the idea of a Feast of Words. The phrase itself apparently originates in the, the years of the European Renaissance, Italy and France, where it uh, characteristically described one of those grand banquets that were part of, the, part of courtly tradition in Europe, and that involved, again, both feasting and cultural and ceremonial and performing activities of a variety of kinds. But the idea of a feast of words and of celebrations that combine communal banquets and uh, expressions, again, in words and otherwise of the human soul and spirit are not limited to the European Renaissance. There is, in fact, a Swahili word, karamu, uh, which is a word, again, for a feast and banquet that's part of the annual celebrations in East African Swahili coast culture. It's a term that's become part of African-American culture in the context of our modern Kwanzaa celebrations. And Kwanzaa Ya Imani, all right, or the Feast of Faith, is part of the, uh, the celebrations that African-Americans now observe annually as they uh, pay homage again to the African tradition and its global impact. So uh, let me pronounce this feast of words also a karamu on our behalf. And I'll say about that, that in terms of the African-American cultural historical context, that uh, its use goes back uh, to the uh, World War I era and the founding of a theater, Settlement House Theater in Cleveland that uh, in 1941 would come to be called Karamu House and was a place where our distinguished Dean of Poetry, Langston Hughes, uh, labored and performed for the public for a good many years. So with that, uh, that said, giving us a, a, a cross-cultural context for Feast of Words. Uh, let me say that I look forward again to this conversation, first of all, with, with, with Cecily Marcus, who has been a marvelous curator of the Givens Collection uh, for these many years, uh, but also, again, a dialogue with those of you in the audience who may have questions on a variety of fronts about what I'm going to discuss. Uh, we were talking about the uh, the title for this session, the <laughs> unapologetic omnivore, and I guess that may require a little bit of explanation. Cecily suggests that uh, that the, my array of different fields of academic endeavor may be partial explanation for it, but there's more to it than that, and perhaps I might offer a little explanation in that uh, in that regard. Although, again, I'm going to try to keep my monologue comparatively short so that Cecily and I can converse and that you can then, in the audience, can then join us afterwards. I had the, the great good fortune of being born into the city of Minneapolis in the Phillips neighborhood near Franklin and Chicago, immediately after the Second World War. And I was born into a family again, very fortunately, 
that uh, placed great value on the, the power and the promise, the possibilities of education and learning. So I was encouraged from my very earliest years to read, to observe, to be curious, to explore my various interests in as many ways as possible. And that was reinforced in part by my being named for my grandfather, John S. Wright I, who was himself a, uh, had been a school teacher in Kentucky and who had followed members of his family and his wife's family here way out west to Minnesota in the late 19th century as refugees from post-Reconstruction Kentucky. It was in my grandfather's library in the family farm home in Robbinsdale that I first had my encounter again with uh, the world of words on a, a broad comprehensive scale. My grandfather, again, who uh, was a kind of gentleman farmer, uh, he was sometimes called, and whom I never saw save in a three-piece Edwardian suit, had built a marvelous home library, several hundred volumes. And it was there that I first had my exposure to the world of books on a, on a wide and varied scale. His library contained uh, the, uh, the, the, the classics. He himself was, uh, knew Greek and Latin, and it contained not only uh, classical uh, uh, works, anthologies, lexicons, etc., but uh, collections like Bullfinch's Mythology, which was where I got my first, my first exposure again to the classic Greco-Roman mythic traditions. My grandfather also had full sets of the, uh, the works of uh, James Fenimore Cooper, for instance, on the one hand, and of a variety of poets, English and American poets, who included Emerson and Robert and, and uh, Thoreau and so on. But he also uh, was a, a race man, as the term was used back then, and his library included volumes of Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois, and uh, a first edition of uh, Alain Locke's The New Negro, which would become a central volume in the development of the Harlem Renaissance during the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah, there were popular texts in the in my grandfather's library also, and uh, everything again from pulp novels, the novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs on the one hand, uh, to uh, scientific treatises and collections of essays, etc. So very early on, I got exposed again to this wide array of, 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 of learned materials and popular materials. My mother, bless her soul, had taught me to read before I started kindergarten at age four. And I indeed became an omnivorous reader. She encouraged me mightily, as did my father. But my mother had, uh, uh, who after having led a very impoverished childhood, uh, had uh, herself found great solace in books and the world of words and imagination. So in all those respects, I was very, very fortunate indeed and as I worked my own way through the educational system, the public education systems of the state of Minnesota, um, I would find that initial grounding absolutely central for my own development.
a, a point of uh, in which the, the the personal and the professional uh, connect. Um, the oldest text in the Archie Given Senior Collection of African American Literature is of 1773, first edition of the poems of Phyllis Wheatley, poems on various subjects, religious and moral. And we are very proud in the, in the collection of having, again, these first editions of that particular text. I first became aware of Phyllis Wheatley, however, not as the uh, 18th century poet that she was, but uh, as the woman for whom the Phyllis Wheatley Center in North Minneapolis was named. And uh, a center where my grandmother had uh, formed a very strong partnership with Gertrude Brown, who was the legendary ahead of the Phyllis Wheatley House during its, its, its spectacular years in the 1920s and 1930s. Be much later that I would encounter Phyllis Wheatley as an author, a writer. And one of the things that my own my career has tried to, to, uh, to do is to place African-American writers, thinkers, inventors, scientists, et cetera, in the broadest kinds of context. And uh, Phyllis Wheatley is perhaps an appropriate place to start. Even today, the single best known poem by Phyllis Wheatley is a poem called On Being Brought from Africa to America. And it, uh, it's very short, it goes as follows. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God that there's a savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember Christians, Negroes black as Cain may be refined and join the angelic train. That brief poem is still, is still the most widely anthologized poem by Phyllis Wheatley. It was, however, a child's Sunday school exercise written when she was about 12 years old and reflected the inculcations of the Protestant and Puritan religious tradition in which she was raised in colonial Boston. It would be years later before I would discover a poem that's an appropriate counterpoint for understanding someone like Phyllis Wheatley. And uh, it's a poem that also was published in that, 19, in that 1773 volume of hers. It's called On Imagination. And I wanna just quote two brief stanzas from that poem. Now here, now there, the roving fancy flies till some loved object strikes her wandering eyes, whose silken fetters all the senses bind and soft captivity involves the mind. Imagination, who can sing thy force? Or who describe the swiftness of thy course? Soaring through air to find the bright abode the imperial palace of the thundering God, we on thy pinions can surpass the wind and leave the rolling universe behind. 
from star to star, the mental optics rove, measure the skies and range the realms above. There in one view, we grasp the mighty whole or with new worlds amaze the unbounded soul. It's a world of difference between those two poems by Phyllis Wheatley, the childhood uh, Sunday school rhyme in which she wrestles with the ambivalent religious traditions that African-Americans had to confront in the course of, of becoming New World Christians. That on the one hand, and that second poem, On Imagination, which is a praise poem to the powers of imagination, here for this woman who was herself a slave, but who found in imagination a way to move beyond those, again, silken fetters that bind the senses and instead free the mind. And in that second stanza, Wheatley makes clear what many of her scholarly commentators have not paid much attention to. She was familiar with, was aware of Isaac Newton's scientific texts of the late 18th century of Newton's Principia and Newton's optics, the optics in particular that she alludes to here, uh, which was Newton's attempt to, exp to explain scientifically the qualities of light, the spectrum of light. And in many ways, Newton could help revolutionize our sense both of the scientific process on the one hand and the links between science and the imagination on the other. That link again between the imaginative world of words on the one hand, the worlds of science and so forth, has continued to preoccupy me throughout my career. And it's something I hope we'll get a chance to discuss uh, going forward. These days, I'm engaged in a variety of enterprises that try to bring together uh, the experiences linked to the whole array of, of, of scientific and humanities and arts disciplines as they pertain to African-American life, thought, and tradition. So with that, perhaps as enough of an opening monologue, I'd like to invite Cecily to help start a conversation between the two of us. Thank you, Dr. Wright. I just want to let you know we have um, 269 computers looking at us. So who knows how many how many people are actually there? Probably more than we might have been able to fit into the campus club uh, had we been able to be there tonight. Um, thank you for those opening remarks. Um, you know, you have uh, talked tonight and um, with me you know, over the years about, again, the, the range of your, your interests and how this intellectual insatiability, um, this Catholic interest with a, a small C is something that you share with um, a number of people, not only in your family, but uh, intellectual mentors of, uh, throughout your life. Some you've known and, and some you haven't. You've described that 
curiosity. And as a result, on the one hand, um, of just wanting to learn more and more and being encouraged to do so, but also of, as a product of the uncertainties of life as a Black man in America. So could you talk a little bit more about how this quest for knowledge has driven you over the course of your career um, as a student, as, as a scholar, and as a Black man? Absolutely. And to go back to what for me is the beginning, I go back again to my first efforts at uh, dealing with the words of the world of words and the uh, absolutely central influence of my mother, who would herself become an elementary school teacher and a specialist in reading, teaching reading, although she was neither of those when she first uh, started reading stories to me as a young child. And she had, again, in our small apartment in the Phillips neighborhood then, a, a collection of children's books. And uh, they included an array of, uh, of such titles. But one that I particularly remember and that particular impact on me was Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories, a collection of uh, what folklorists call ideological tales, that is tales that try to explain um, to children the workings of the world, of the universe, mm -hmm. things came to be. And one of those stories in particular, uh, it was called uh, The Elephant's Child, or How the Elephant Got Its Tail. And it concludes with a poem that uh, involves the verse that reads, <laughs> I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and where and when and how and why and who. And I early uh, on recited that poem, and I guess in internalized uh, Again, this question asking heuristic that's uh, put into rhyme there for children. These days, it still survives uh, uh, as uh, the uh, what's what I call what reporters and journalists call the five W's that anyone attempting to describe human events needs to address and doing so whole, holistically. But for me, it was a spur again to, to, to ask questions and to not uh, worry about the boundaries that might be crossed in process. And that I think is part of what has, you know, has carried me along all the way. Again, I read omnivorously as a, as, a, as a child in school and outside of school, devouring the books at home, again, in my grandfather's uh, library, but everything that the school library and the libraries of friends could offer. So um, that meant that I, you know, tra traversed across again what uh, we now we know as the disciplines, and uh, of course with the child's enthusiasm, with uh, little concern about uh, going places that I wasn't supposed to go. Second point in terms of this catholicity of interests, uh, you know the idea of the Renaissance man, a Renaissance woman. This is a a subject that I have dealt with a, a good deal in the course of my scholarly career and in, in the classroom and talking about the Harlem Renaissance and the idea of Renaissance man, a Renaissance woman, the so-called universal man 
or woman, master of, uh, of a variety of fields of endeavor and exploration and artistic accomplishment and so on. But uh, that kind of omnicompetency is not purely a product of, uh, or at least for most people, I don't believe, of, uh, of raw academic curiosity. Um, not just curiosity, but necessity has been a driving force in African-American life. And so many African-Americans who uh, were mentors for me, either whether they were close and personal or farther away, have had lives driven by necessity to uh, absorb, to confront, to try to master a wide variety of fields at the, at the level of the vernacular, all right? the so-called jackleg, all right, or master of all trades in vernacular terms, uh, became a common figure in African-American life, in part because so many African-Americans have had to learn to do a wide variety of things in order to survive in the world. My father, who graduated from the University School of Mortuary Science in the 1930s and had a scientific education, also went to Dunwoody all right, to Dunwoody work, Woodworking and Industrial Arts School. Mm -hmm. All right, my grandfather, again, who had, again, a training in Latin and Greek, all right, became, as I said, also a farm, uh, a, a farm owner and uh, learned, again, to operate in those multiple worlds. One of the, uh, a, a close family friend, uh, you know, who has strong Minnesota links here, Gordon Parks, uh, was the kind of Renaissance man who in his own terms uh, had learned to master so many different fields, whether it was photography or film or athletics or fashion, so on and so forth, because he said he had grown up so poor that he never wanted to be that poor again and mastered so many fields as he did and without graduating from high school, simply in order to survive, to have the widest range of possibilities open to him. So combination of necessity on the one hand and curiosity on the other. Can you talk a little bit about who some of those other mentors are um, and, and maybe specifically, what is it uh, in uh, Ralph Ellison that has you know driven you so compellingly well i was very fortunate uh, to have a relationship with ralph and fanny ellison in part as an outgrowth of the very first academic uh, conference on ralph's life and works which was held at brown university back in 1979 and my uh, very close friend and and, and collaborator uh, the poet michael harper helped organize. And uh, in the context of that Ellison Festival of 1979, I, got, I edited the proceedings, so forth, Ralph's uh, uh, speeches and writing for it, as well as a wide array of marvelous scholars. Uh, I developed a very close relationship with Ralph and Fanny Ellison during the last 15 years of, of Ralph's life. And it in part was Ralph's, besides the, his novel, Invisible Man, which is one of the great novelistic masterpieces of the, of the 20th century, his collection of essays, Shadow and Act, is a marvelous cultural 
document in its own right and stands or ought to stand on a level with uh, the voice of souls of black folk. Well, part of the opening section of, of, of Shadow and Act, Ralph deals with the idea of Renaissance man and woman as he encountered it himself in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, as a junior high school in a class taught by a black teacher, again, amidst the rise of the Harlem Renaissance, in which this idea of Renaissance omnicompetency became part of the vernacular world also. Ralph saw it at work in the world of, of the jazz musicians to whom he was so close, so intently drawn. But he saw it operative in African-American life again in a variety of other, other ways. Ralph was the most uh, eloquent articulator of this revised, this vernacular notion of Renaissance omnicompetency that I would encounter along the way. And we had some wonderful discussions in the course of our times together in the past talking about it. You, you said that you're, you're working on a project about African-American intellectual and literary history that focuses mostly on the 19th century, but that this sprawling project has led you to pursue all different kinds of subjects, everything from uh, artisan fields and the occult to uh, games like Moncala that you know date back to, as, as you said, as you told me today, um, likely before the second century AD. Um, can you walk us through just one example of how one uh, interest in your life has led to another? Okay, I'll, I'll try to be brief on this, Cecily. <laughs> I, again, I had the great good fortune to become part of a working group on black intellectual history at Harvard's W.E.B. Du Bois Institute many years ago. Again, beginning with, with multiple sojourns there in the in the 1980s and then later in the early uh, uh, 1990s. While there, I encountered the uh, a volume, a first edition, of the very first African-American literary magazine. So this is called the Anglo-African Magazine, which was published in New York City in 1859 and 1860. It was a marvelous compendium of essays from the leaders of African-American cultural and intellectual and political life in the, in the middle of the 19th century, in the years leading up to Civil War. And uh, names that, uh, that you know, the audience will, will be familiar with, like Frederick Douglass were included there and Martin Delaney and many, many others. But what particularly caught my attention was an unsigned essay on chess, on chess that focused on a, well, the very first uh, National American Chess Congress, a national tournament to determine the best chess player in the United States. It was held in New York and in 1857, and which was won by a New Orleans Creole prodigy named Paul Morphy, who was to the 19th century what Bobby Fischer was to the 20th century. That is a child prodigy who become the best chess player on the planet. And this unnamed essay in the Anglo-African magazine was written amidst this first national fervor, interest in, of course, the ancient board game, abstract strategy board game of chess. And it was a more wonderfully sophisticated essay that was concerned 
on the one hand, with what were the intellectual faculties that went into making a superlative chess player, as was Paul Morphy and the German uh, uh, chess master exile, Louis Paulson, whom he played uh, in, in that tournament. But this essay on chess also alluded to a group of young black men, uh, most of whom were uh, the offspring of black mothers, um, either slave or free, and of white fathers who denied paternity and who had had to navigate the world of the middle of the 19th century without an official father's guidance or aid. They were also all radical abolitionists as well. They were all part of a group who played chess together and were there at this first chess congress. I had never seen an essay focusing on the play lives of free black folk before. We know more about the play lives of slaves than we do about the lives of, of, of free antebellum folk in the North. And so this essay particularly intrigued me. And part of what the, the writer had done was to to, to try to track the ways in which the playing styles, not just of the two great masters, but also of this cluster of young black players, the way in which their way of, ways of playing chess reflected their personalities. It was also concerned about the, the role of games and play in social change and the need and the struggle for, for freedom to think strategically. So exploring that essay became the, a, a launching point for tracking the lives of the individual players involved and trying to understand the, the, the whole milieu and history of abstract strategy board games, which I came to understand then also included the, the, the variants of Afro-Asian Moncala that slaves had brought to the new world with them. So it's a part of a long way of framing the subject, but that, that's a project that has intrigued me for many years now. And I and my uh, marvelous wife, Serena, have spent a significant uh, time in the past decade or so traveling to different parts of the African world, trying to study and research the tradition of Mancala abstract strategy board games. Well, and, and sort of related, this is a question from someone in the audience um, asking uh, what prompted your shift from uh, studying electrical engineering to, you know, without really missing a beat as a graduate student um, uh, studying African-American literature and American studies? Well, that it's a, a shift, I guess, is one way of describing it. Uh, but I tend to think of it more in terms of, uh, of becoming whole, becoming whole. Um, I ended up, uh, again, pursuing, completing a degree in electrical engineering in part because um, I had some facility with the sciences and mathematics early on. And in junior high and high school was part of a group of what they then called accelerated students who had uh, access to... Uh, to the university and college courses, again, prior to matriculating at the university. And uh, we had a chance to explore, again, the whole spectrum of the arts and humanities, as well as the sciences and social sciences as well. I had interest in almost all of these things. All right? 
But as one of my high school teachers told me at the time, um, engineering is a profession of the future. You will always have a place in the larger economy with an engineering degree and the arts and humanities may be less certain of things. So uh, in part, it was a practical, a pragmatic approach that led me into uh, electrical engineering, but it was by no means a divorce from my interest in the arts and humanities and so on. I guess one of my experiences in high school was being administered the uh, strong and cooter interest tests um, that are linked to the Minnesota multiphasic personality uh, scales that I think are still in use here and that were developed in part at this, this university. But uh, those scales uh, had a, a gendered component that identified the uh, arts and humanities with the, the feminine and the so-called hard sciences with the masculine. And I can recall my conversation with a high school counselor who remarked that uh, my array of interests clearly bridge both of these, that I had very strong feminine interests in arts and humanities, something as an adolescent I perhaps didn't fully understand, but nonetheless, <laughs> I held in place. And it would take my collegiate years and the, uh, my collision again with the era of the, of the Vietnam War and the battle over the draft that would ultimately lead to the collisions that would lead me finally back into the arts and the humanities. So I want to ask you about um, April 26, 2019, when uh, you were present at the Board of Regents meeting um, just weeks before your retirement, um, where you had been a, a student and professor for the better part of, of 50 years. And you were there to re represent not only your work and that of your colleagues on the task force for building, renaming and institutional history, the task force that came out of the Campus Divided exhibit in 2017, but also to bear witness to the university's failure, as, as you put it, to grapple with its own past. And I, I went back and I watched the recording of those um, of that meeting, because one of the great things about a uh, public university in the state of Minnesota is that this is an, an open record uh, campus and all of that, all, all of those meetings are open to the public. Um, and I was struck by how uh, you stood there silently for more than an hour and a half um, while various regents spoke, many of whom disparaged or dismissed the recommendations and, um, and some the integrity of the task force's report. And then you stood silently for another 10 minutes um, where some of the members of the boards of regent were threatening to um, eject you and, and the group of students and colleagues who were there, uh, threatened to uh, have you arrested. Um, and you were surrounded by your colleagues and you were standing literally at the head of this, you know, semicircular table waiting patiently um, while your colleagues and, and some of your students exhorted the board to allow you to speak. They yielded uh, whatever time they were given to you. Um, they corrected the regent who even after 56 years and all of the work that you have done uh, to really help transform this university, uh, the regent who didn't know your name, who called you, he said, is it, is it Mr. Rice? 
Um, you stood silently before you were finally given 10 minutes and you then took the opportunity to speak ex extemporaneously, or at least that's how it seemed to me, um, about a whole range of things. You talked about your family's roots at the university uh, going back to 1901, as you've mentioned tonight. You talked about the university's unfinished work regarding uh, the demands of the Afro-American Action Committee from 1969, uh, how for more than 80 years, it's public knowledge, uh, the university's history of racism, uh, and that knowledge is documented not necessarily uh, in the university archives, but in the Twin Cities Black Press and then the role that the university has had in, uh, or had had in making that history invisible. You talked about uh, the chilling effects, as you put it, of the university's refusal to acknowledge and address practices and policies past and present that uh, seek to separate and silence and, and demean African-American students on this campus. Uh, one of the chilling effects you mentioned was the generations of Black families choosing not to send their kids to the University of Minnesota. You spoke about the obligation and the integrity of the need to grapple with one's own past, that uh, we have to do that if we take seriously the value of higher education and the responsibility of teaching generations of, of thinkers. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you to be in that room? You projected such a sense of patience and decorum that so far exceeded um, many of those around you. Um, what were you thinking about as you stood there silently in the moments before you spoke? That's, there's not a simple answer to that, Cecily, but Clearly, I felt the need to keep faith with my ancestors and my ancestral community here locally, as well as with the, uh, the, the broader principles upon which this uh, land-grant university was founded. And that, again, took me back into my grandparents, my grandfather, uh, again, who had... Uh, uh, organized perhaps the earliest example that we have been able to record thus far of uh, a, a local African-American institution, in this case, the, uh, um, the, uh, the Baptist church to which my grandfather belonged, uh, the oldest black Baptist church in, in Minneapolis, attempt to engage university, African-American university students in matters of common concern. My grandfather had organized a debate at Bethesda Baptist Church in 1901, and he invited three University of Minnesota black law students or recent law graduates to, to participate in this debate at the Bethesda Baptist Church. And it was a part of a debate dealing with the issues that African-Americans has been confronting nationally at the end of the 19th century after the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court case of 1896 that gave judicial sanction to, seg to racial segregation. Uh, the state of Minnesota 
as it happened, has happened in other states afterwards, had passed the following year, in part because of the energies of the local black citizenry and their allies had passed anti-discrimination laws in opposition to the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. My grandfather had organized a debate that essentially focused on the implications of that and how African-American communities ought to, ought to organize. The following year, um, he was part of uh, a planning group for the National Afro-American Council, which was the first national African-American civil rights organization. It was the, it was the predecessor to the, uh, the NAACP. And they had a conference here in St. Paul, brought the, the greatest leaders of the, the nation to Minneapolis and St. Paul to discuss a whole array of issues. And they concluded that convention with a session held at the university's campus in the, in the armory building in 1902. W.B. Du Bois, James, uh, 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 who, Ida B. Wells, Booker T. Washington, T. Thomas Stewart, a whole long list of them were all there. My grandfather was part of the mix. Frederick McGee, the local lawyer, again, who Du Bois credited with helping found the NAACP, was the primary organizer. My grandfather ran two of the committee organizing committees for that conference. So we had this history in the family of engagement with the university and dealing with community university kinds of concerns that uh, had not been, had been left essentially out of the official history of our institution. And this had been compounded in the 1930s when my father and my aunt both came to the university in 1934 and had to confront the uh, the Jim Crow policies of then university president Lotus Kaufman. My aunt was one of no more than four or five women in what was then called the School of Technology. Um, and she was the only African-American. She had been a classroom valedictorian, the valedictorian of North High School class of 1934. But the university sororities, fraternities were all segregated at the time. The, uh, the office of the president with the support of the regents, again, this all that was dealt with, of course, in, our, in the exhibit on the campus divided, were essentially uh, supporting this uh, uh, Jim Crow policies that were in clear violation of those anti-discrimination laws that had been passed back in 1897 and that the black law students my grandfather worked with had put to work in their own defense decades before. All that was bubbling through my mind as I tried to make this extemporaneous speech to regents whom I knew had no understanding and no grasp of that long history. Thank you. Um, well, you, you addressed your, your Aunt Martha, which is another one of the audience's questions, but there have been a couple of questions about um, your, your fashion. Um, could you explain the insignias on your shirt? And then another wants to know, uh, what is the significance of the hat that you, you do always wear? <laughs> All right, <laughs> not exactly a detour. <laughs> the uh, the embroidery here on the uh, the shirt I'm wearing is Egyptian uh, in origin. 
Um, the outer pattern is a pattern, again, of a lotus flowers that had symbolic significance in ancient Egyptian religion. At the center here is a cartouche, which is the oval uh, in, in hieroglyphic, Egyptian hieroglyphic traditions in which royal names were transcribed. So that's the, uh, uh, the basic uh, design behind this. The uh, hat I'm wearing, the beret, uh, and the image, the Im image on front, which is often taken to be a uh, a military symbol, but actually is not. the The symbol itself is also Egyptian. Um, it's the winged scarab, the uh, earthly emblem of the uh, the royal dung beetle that in Egyptian cosmology rolls the solar orb through the heavens day by day, turns dark uh, into light, day uh, into night, uh, and, and is represented by the god Kephra, again, the god of rebirth and resurrection. So the military beret, beret has essentially been demilitarized by the, the winged scarab. Thank you, and thank you for indulging in, in that. A detour. Um, someone is asking from the audience um, if you are writing or considering writing uh, a memoir about your battles and uh, legacy of racism at the University of Minnesota. Um, uh, writing, all of us would so benefit by your sharing your tremendous history and insight. Thank you for all that you've done. Well, I appreciate the question. I'm not presently working on a memoir, although I am working very energetically on family history, on trying to track again the, the history of both my parental and maternal sides of the family and uh, have enlisted a variety of, of, of assistance in, the, in that process. So uh, again, you know, we all have fascinating histories once we begin to really wrestle with them. And I promised uh, my mother and other family elders that uh, uh, I would do my best to try to to uh, to bring together again those elements of family hi history that had not been uh, properly archived, in part so that we can share them with uh, a younger generation now. Again, my aunt, my aunt Martha, again the brilliant mathematician, uh, um, who again who was again both the the, the president of the Council of Negro Students, the first black student organization at this university, and also the, the head of the AKAs on campus at the same time. My aunt was also our, our primary family historian for the paternal side of my family. And so again, I've been uh, trying to, to uh, assemble those details, whether that uh, results in a, in, a, in a memoir, a book, uh, that sort remains to be seen. You, you also um, have alluded to your mother's influence. Can you say more about her as well? Yes, my mother was an extraordinary woman. Um, she's, uh, that side of the family is West Indian in origin. My mother was part of uh, the uh, big uh, influx of immigrants from the British West Indies right at the beginning of the 20th century in the decades before the First World War. The same uh, influx that brought people like uh, Marcus Garvey again to this country. My mother's people came from Barbados and ended up in Boston. And she uh, grew up there in that context, uh, retained 
uh, Barbadian links in a variety of ways and helped, uh, at least in my case, to uh, trigger some interest in that uh, West Indian Carib set of Caribbean connections for us also. She uh, performed the amazing feat from my vantage point looking back now. Uh, she had originally been trained in Boston um, in, uh, in business um, and be had been, been an trained as an executive secretary uh, back in those days, but at a time when uh, Boston was notoriously racist city and professionally educated black folks had little professional opportunities. Uh, she, however, was recruited by the president of Savannah State College to come to Savannah, Georgia and become his executive assistant, um, which she did. So she had a very important uh, link to the historically black colleges and universities. And here the, the, the linkage, the family linkage uh, broadens a bit more uh, because it was there that she met my aunt, Martha who after graduating here from the uh, School of Technology and getting a master's degree in education, being denied employment and education here in Minnesota, had also been recruited to go to uh, Savannah State College in Savannah, Georgia and become a faculty member in the Department of Mathematics, where she remained for the bulk of her professional career, ultimately became Dean and acting president and so forth. My aunt and my mother uh, became uh, close friends in Savannah State, and my 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 aunt then introduced her close friend, my mother May, to her older brother Boyd, who had graduated again from the university's um, school of mortuary science and had been unable to get uh, uh, professional appointments here in Minnesota with his training, and had gone south to. Uh, to Georgia, to Atlanta, to work in one of the large black uh, funeral homes there. So we had this fascinating link here in the family history of three Northern-born, college-educated black folks migrating back into the segregated Jim Crow South for professional opportunity, which my mother, again, took uh, great advantage of. She would later on, in her mid-40s, go back, start as a freshman at the university in education get a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree in special education, would teach in schools on the north side of Minneapolis for more than a quarter of a century as part of a very small group of African-American teachers in the Minneapolis school system in the uh, 1970s, 80s, so on. Well, um, this is a comment from the audience. Just a heartfelt thank you for your historic knowledge, your wisdom, your ability to connect the dots between our history then and our history today. Your family genealogy is also so powerful. Um, another question that came through uh, from a former student at the U during the takeover of Morrill Hall during that time, can you talk about the motivation and uh, the results of that takeover? Well, the takeover, the roots of the takeover. In, like, in, in like four minutes or less. <laughs> well, I've, <laughs> I've talked about this in a, in a variety of contexts, but I'll try to be brief. The, uh, the roots of the takeover lay in the assassination of Martin King in the spring of uh, 1968, in April 4th of 1968. Um, the, our black student organization on campus prior to that time 
had originally been called STRAP, Students for Racial Progress. And we had managed to bring Dr. King to the university campus in the spring of 1967, April of 1967, uh, one year almost to the date uh, prior to his assassination. Uh, the uh, assassination of Dr. King on, on uh, April 4th of 1968 generated reverberations around this country. African-Americans and our allies around the country uh, rose in rebellion and American cities went up in flames, more than a hundred such cities. And uh, it, this was taking place over a weekend. We as members of our student organization, we had changed our student organization's name from STRAP to the Afro-American Action Committee. We met on campus in the union uh, the following beginning of the following week and tried to decide how we could respond in a way that would both honor Dr. King and lead to constructive social change on campus and in the larger community. The group asked me to, to, to draft a response and I framed what became the seven demands that we presented the following week to then President Malcolm Moose and his administration. The university formed a task force as universities of course are, can be expected to do to study the problem. And eight months later, with little to show for that process, we met again with uh, representatives of Professor, President Moose's administration, found their responses inadequate, and then decided to take nonviolent direct action in the spirit of Dr. King to uh, pursue those original uh, demands from the previous April. Well, I know that there is uh, much more that we could uh, continue to talk about, and I, I think our audience would probably stick with us, but um, thank you, Dr. Wright, for uh, having this conversation with, with me and, and with all of us. Well, I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Again, it's been an honor to, to join the illustrious legacy of the Feast of Words presenters. And again, this very first Zoom Feast of Words, we hope will be the last in this, mo in this modality. Uh, we hope we'll be returning to more traditional forms of exchange in the future. But again, my thanks to all those who helped work so hard to make this event take place and to all the viewers who, who joined us for this exchange. Dr. Wright and Cecily, thank you so much. This was um, riveting and um, there are so many people who have so many questions. I hope uh, we might have to uh, have a have a uh, part two. So I hope you'll consider that at some point. Um, I, I did want to share too, one of the, the comments that was in um, the, the Q&A because I can't say it any better. Um, uh, she says, Carrie Winner says, um, in an academy that often rewards minuscule specialization, he opens us to the universe of insatiable learning. And boy, I think, I know I learned a great deal tonight. So I just thank you. And thank you, Cecily, for your fabulous, fabulous questions. Um, I do wanna share that tonight's program was sponsored by the Friends of the University Libraries and the Campus Club. And for those friends who joined us today, we appreciate your support and your commitment.
And for those of you who are not yet friends, we invite you to join us. Uh, to do so, please go to lib.umn.edu backslash friends. Our next Friends Forum, a series of Curious Minds event is John Berryman's Selected Letters, a transatlantic celebration. Letters by the late poet held in our upper Midwest literary archives were used for the book, which sheds the light on his life and work. Poet and critic Peter Campion will moderate this event, which will include readings by the book editors and invited guests from both sides of the Atlantic. Join us on March 3rd at 3 p.m. Central Time, and the reservation form is available at z.umn.edu Friends Forum. So everyone, Dr. Wright, Cecily, audience, thank you so much. And thank you to all of you who have worked so hard to make this program possible. Thank you. Thank you.